When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Welcome to Far-Fetched Fables, part of the District of Wonders Network, featuring Starship Sofa, Tales to Terrify, Crime City Central, and Protecting Project Pope. Everyone has a story in the District of Wonders. Come find yours. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening. Wherever you are, wherever you're listening from, this is Far-Fetched Fables. Welcome to show number 106. I'm your host, Nicholas eaton Clark, feeling much better this week. And we have a trio of lovely tales for you, beginning with another instalment of Jay Lake and Ruth Nestfold's Tales of the Rose Knights, titled Rosaray de la Haye. Jay Lake lived in Portland, Oregon, until his death in 2014, shortly before his 50th birthday. His books include Kalimpura from Tor and Love in the Time of Metal and Flesh from Prime. Jay was a winner of the John W. Campbell Award for Best New Writer and a multiple nominee for the Hugo and World Fantasy Awards. In 2015, he posthumously received the Locus Award for his collection, Last Plane to Heaven. You can learn more about him and his work at jlake.com. Ruth Nestvold has published widely in science fiction and fantasy, her fiction appearing in such markets as Asimov's, Fantasy and Science Fiction, and Year's Best Science Fiction. Her work has been nominated for the Nebula, Tiptree, and Sturgeon Awards. She can be found online at ruthnestvold.com. Jay and Ruth's collection of short stories, Almost All the Way Home from the Stars, is available at Amazon and via iTunes. The story is read for us by Deanna Sanchez, a voiceover artist and actress who has performed professionally for 14 years. She has voiced various commercials, industrials and characters, and specialises in the sexy voice of powerful female roles. Deanna also consults in geographical information systems and develops custom mapping applications for real estate and other industries. Three-dimensional visualization of spatial data is a favorite pastime, and she has spent many hours translating real-earth elevation data into unique 3D worlds. And so, here we have it. Rosaria de la Haye by Jay Lake and Ruth Nestvold. In the steep-walled country of Hyrugosa, where the women guard their swords and the men guard their tongues, dwelt a daughter of the Fae named Rosaria de la Haye. She had been born to gentility, armored in beetle carapaces and twinkling magic while still in her willow-wood cradle, and grown slowly in the manner of the fair folk into a woman of subtle beauty and profound power. Her face was an apple, sweet and round, with just enough lines that one might believe she had stories to tell. Her laughter was a summer storm on the high peaks, where giants throw lightning for sport and ghosts howl for heaven. She was lethe and quick, supple as a spring otter, graceful as an autumn leaf spinning out its last dance from branch to earth. And still she had her power the lacquered armor of the magenta knight, which was her war name, and the needle-thin fey sword called Promise. In short, 
Rosarie de la Haye was a woman no man could pass without looking twice, but more dangerous than armies, a danger to heart and soul as well as to body. Now there dwelt in Hyrugosa a tribe of the oldest people. These were gnarled little men who worshipped smoke and drew dark-limbed images on cavern walls, coming to trade furtively at the edge of market towns or on the grassy verges of the Fay Hills. To the oldest people, everyone else, Fay and human alike, were just so many chattering, chaffering children. But it happened that Rosarie de la Haye came upon a child of the oldest people being tormented by wolves of the two-legged sort. She was walking, with only a leather jerkin sewn with lacquered steel for armor, dressed otherwise in a flowing muslin skirt and her generous smile. Promise stayed at her hand, as always. She found five fay-born lads of various ages surrounding the small, hairy child, hurling taunts, sticks, and stones with equal verve. Rosarie drew promise and flicked the needle tip to make the singing death war call of her folk. The lads turned to face her, saw the sparkling gleam of promise, and believed in their fates. Or perhaps knew that their fates believed in them. So Rosarie de la Haye gathered up the crying child, who was no larger than a sack of flour, and carried it on her left hip while keeping promise ready in her right hand. Eventually she came upon three women of the oldest people keening by the bank of a stream. "'I have something of yours,' said Rosarie de la Haye. "'Nothing have you,' muttered one of the women. The oldest people were never much for speech, and less so for the new liquid tongues which had spread like fire among the folk of the wide world. The magenta knight set down the child, who by then had taken comfort from the sway of her hip and the rhythm of her laughter, and quieted. "'Ours no more,' said the oldest people woman after taking a deep sniff. "'Children are children. Take and go.' "'No!' Promise quivered in her hand, but Rosarie de la Haye did show the women their fates, even though the oldest people were not hers to judge. And they stared, the most ancient power in the world, and the newest, eyes meeting as the sun westered and the birdsong changed, and the stars peeked out one by one. Finally, under a ship-bellied moon, the child began to whimper from hunger. I have no milk, Rosarie de la Haye said quietly. A woman tilted her head to the magenta knight's slow patience and took the child to her breast. In a swirl of mist and leaves, she and her sisters were gone, leaving promise ringing Rosarie de la Haye's fate. The magenta knight heard the song, smiled briefly, and headed west following the setting sun away from Hyrugosa, and into a life she might never have otherwise known. In her wake, for years to come, were left tiny stone figures, little forest goddesses with a likeness to her, to remind the people who she had been. The tales of the Rose Knights never fail to surprise us. We'll have another one for you next month. Our next story is something a little lighter, The Immigrant by Cherie Priest. Cherie is the author of 19 books and novellas, most recently I Am Princess X, Chapelwood, and the Philip K. Dick Award nominee Maplecroft. But she is perhaps best known for her steampunk pulp adventures of the clockwork century, beginning with Bone Shaker. Her works have been nominated for the Hugo and Nebula Awards for Science Fiction and have won the Locus Award, among others. They've been translated into nine languages in 11 countries. Cherie lives in Chattanooga, Tennessee, with her husband and a small menagerie of exceedingly photogenic pets. She can be found online at cheriepriest.com. The story is read by Anthony Babington, a voice in the Internet's head. He looks almost, but not quite, exactly how you expect him to. He currently resides in Houston, Texas, but is in the process of relocating to Minnesota. 
He can be found on Google+. And now, The Immigrant by Cherie Priest. One. Found among the papers of Ryder Neal on the day after his funeral, July 30, 1996, Jonesboro, Tennessee. Vine midi, he said. With a jaw like that, so long and underbitten like a boxer dog, you wouldn't have thought he could speak at all. His face wasn't made for talking, but he forced the words out. He said it again, quiet-like. Vine midi. I knew what it meant. I didn't know ten words of French total, but I knew those last two pushed together with an apostrophe, if you wrote them out. He looked like a cross between a lizard and a cat, or he did when he was sitting, anyway. When he stood and unfolded himself, he was the size of a pillow, maybe? But so slender, bones so thin they must have been fragile. Something about the way he held that one wing back, something about his crouch, all submissive, like a dog or a kid afraid of being hit. It made me think he was a brittle little thing. He had my attention, and he knew it. I don't know why I thought of him automatically as a he, but it must have been that voice. It could have been a boy's voice, if that boy was very tired and maybe sick. We stared at each other for a minute. He looked at me through half-closed eyes, and he probably figured the worst. I was a mess, and I looked mean. It had been less than a month since Normandy. I'd been down through France, which wasn't half so bad, once you got past that initial reception. As soon as we got into Paris, they sent me and a few others out to dislodge the last of the Germans, the ones who hadn't got the message yet that Paris had been liberated. Most of them had run out ahead of us, but there were a few here and there, digging in and holding out. I thought I'd heard something, you know how it is, down a dark alley in a beat-up part of the city. Don't want to look, don't want to check. Don't want to go. Seen enough already. But orders are orders, so you do it anyhow. I told myself it was a few stray bricks fallen from an unlucky wall or a shell-battered house. I knew the crowds hadn't been too hard on the city, not compared to other places. But there were beat-up spots here and there, and I'd found one. I just hoped the spot was unoccupied. That was the trick. I haven't heard half of that prayer, I guess which is fitting since it was a shot-open basement of a fancy church. A door like a storm cellar's hatch had been broken. It swung free and loose from its hinge. Stairs led down into the dark, and I followed him with my gun drawn and pointed, because that's how you survive going into dark places that have unexplained noises in them. Down to the bottom of the stairs, in a room with a few prayer candles for light, I found a dead priest. He'd been there long enough to be good and stiff, but not long enough to smell right. I got a whiff of blood, though. Lots of blood. Stepped in it, too. Slipped a tiny bit before catching myself, and before catching a glimpse of him. He was curled beneath a table, behind the priest. At first I thought he'd killed the prostrate man in the cassock, so at first I jerked the gun up and pointed it hard at the pair of eyes I saw down close to the floor. That's when he spoke. You can shoot a scary-looking dog if it comes down to it. You can shoot a vicious-looking animal, even if it's not threatening you yet. There's a trigger in your head, and it tells you when there's danger, even before you got all your information. Even though he was less than half my size, and hiding, and not making any threatening gestures, some primal urge was just yanking at that mental trigger. Until he breathed that plea. Midi. You can't shoot something so strange when it talks to you like that. Not out of hand. Not if it asked for help. Besides, even at a dozen paces I could see that the priest had been shot. When I looked at the thing's hands, they weren't really hands, but close enough, I was pretty sure they couldn't have held a gun. They couldn't have pulled a trigger. Not easily, not deliberately. With those webs and blunt, thumb-thick claws. I lowered the tip of the rifle. He hadn't hurt anybody, and he was doing his best to indicate that he wouldn't hurt me. What are you? I asked. His forehead wrinkled just like a man's, just like he was listening and trying to understand. Jesus Christ, what the hell are you? Jesus' name he knew. 
He nodded, because I guess he misunderstood. I remembered then that we were underneath a church. His crazy hands of his came together to make a prayer with the steeple point. We, he said, and unclasped his hands to gesture at the candles. Behind them, blotted with shadows, a statue of Mary leaned against a wall. We, I said back, because it was one other word I knew, and hell. What do you say to something like that? To something like him? With a pain shuffle and a lurch, he turned his side to face me. My first impression had been right. Something was wrong with his wing. When the flickering light hit it directly, I saw it was bent at a bad angle. Probably broken, but not in a way where any bones were poking through, so it could have been worse. He was showing me he was harmless. He was showing me he needed help, in case I didn't catch the French. I put the gun down slow. I put my hands out in front of me, and I sort of hunkered down, tiptoeing toward him. I'd had enough of people wanting to hurt me in the last few months, so if he didn't want to hurt me, I didn't want to hurt him. I didn't know what he was, but if he wasn't a kraut, and he wasn't in trouble, then I didn't mind helping him if I could. He let me approach, and even held out the wing for me to look. I touched it as gently as I could, feeling my way along it. His skin was smooth and a pretty gold red. Covered with scales, it looked like it ought to feel slimy, but it was dry and soft, like the tight, expensive gloves the French girls wore. Ah! It grunted when I hit the swollen spot. I thought he was objecting, but he didn't pull away. He made the noise again, and finished the question. American? The word sounded funny in his mouth, with the accents in the wrong place and the vowels laid out flat. Yeah, that's right. American. That's me. Let me see it. Let me help. And he did. It's not like I was a medic or anything, because I wasn't. And even if I had been... I don't think there was a doctor in the corps who could have splinted that crazy wing. Under the candles, and under some mortar debris on the table, there was a cloth. I pulled it off and shook it, flapping it open like my mother used to spread out sheets on the bed. I dropped it down over him like a cloak or a blanket. When I picked him up, he was as light as a child. Two. The trick was getting him home, obviously. It doesn't bear much of a dry retelling, so, suffice it to say, I had to ship him back with me as freight. I set him up as best I could. It turned out he would eat almost anything edible, and he didn't much care what it was. It took some doing, but I got him put on my own transport home so I could keep an eye on him. This also made it easier to slip him better food, once in a while. Though truth to tell, there were times I thought about trading with him for the good French dog chow I'd scored for him. My sergeant knew what was going on, or thought he did. He thought I was sneaking a dog back, maybe. It happened every now and again, and he was good enough to look the other way. He said if I got caught with contraband on board, he didn't know anything about it, and it was nobody's problem but mine. So I kept it my problem. I kept sneaking downstairs into the cargo hold with a bag of dog food and sometimes a covered tin plate of army chow. It wasn't as if I was going to eat it all anyway. Army cooking at its finest can't hold a candle to what my Alice can do with a stove. Speaking of Alice, I spent many a night wondering how I was going to explain him to her. How do you start that conversation with your wife? Hi, honey. I'm home. Meet the weird little French dragon I found under a table in a church. His name's Pierre, I think. That's what I think he said. That's why I started calling him, anyway. I started teaching him English, too. He picked it up a whole lot better and a whole lot faster than I ever caught on to French. By the time I got him back to East Tennessee, we could manage a fair outline of a conversation. His first attempt at talking sounded like a man teaching a dog how to sit and speak, I imagine. I didn't mean it that way. I wasn't trying to treat him like he was dumb. He was small and quiet and four-legged plus a pair of wings. He wasn't a dog, and he wasn't a child. But he was my charge, and if I was going to get him home safe... He needed to know how to be quiet on cue. Like I said, he was a quick study. Three. Home was a parcel of land in the Appalachians, 
just a few miles away from where Dave Crockett was born. The nearest town was Jonesboro, and the nearest town of any size was Johnson City. I tell you that just to give you some frame of reference, because otherwise you wouldn't really know how far out into the sticks we were. That's one reason I thought it might be safe to bring Pierre home. There was no one around to see him and worry, not for miles. Our nearest neighbors made their living selling homemade alcohol and hiding it from Uncle Sam, so I figured the odds weren't too good they'd run to the police even if they saw anything strange. Alice was my only worry. I'd married a farm girl. She could grow or butcher most of her own food, or bottle-feed a lamb if it came to that. She was one of the most competent and practical women I ever knew. So I decided to trust her, and trust that level-headed steadiness. A friend of mine helped unload the pickup truck with my duffel bag, a few presents from Europe, and that big damn crate with the suspicious-looking holes in the top. Pierre was silent as luggage. We deposited him in the barn, in a quiet back stall away from the horses. It took me a while to get rid of Andy, who wanted a round of beers and war stories before he'd go on his way. But once he was gone, I took Alice by the hand and led her back out to the barn. I got something to show you, I told her. I found him in Paris. Him? He frowned at me, and at the crate. Dear God Almighty, don't tell me you left something alive in there. He's... Yeah, he's alive. But I couldn't just send him like a puppy or anything, Alice. He's different. He's real different. And he's hurt, but not too bad. I took a crowbar and pried at the lid. He needs a place to rest up and heal. The lid came up, and I pulled down the panel that hid Pierre, exposing him to the dim, barn-filtered light, and to Alice, who covered her mouth with her hands. Jesus, she said. Pierre was crouched with his face in a corner. He turned slowly and blinked at the light, and at my wife. He's just like one of us, baby, and hurt by the Nazis. I couldn't leave him there. She sank to a low squat in order to meet him on eye level. It's his wing, isn't it? It's broken. Broken, he whispered back. He knew that word, so he knew to agree. He talks! It wasn't a question. She never asked stupid questions. Jesus, Lord, what is he? He got the gist, and he answered more or less. Pierre, he said, patting his chest and looking at Alice with a fresh sort of hope or optimism. Pierre, damn it, Ryder, you weren't going to keep him out here in the barn, were you? I looked to the dragon like he would answer for me, or for himself. I was going to put him, I figured, wherever he wanted to go. I couldn't see talking Andy into helping me carry that crate up to the guest room, though. He'd have wanted to see what was inside, and you're the first person I've tried to show this fellow to. Well, all right then, Pierre. Sweetheart, let me take a look at that. Let me see what we can do. That's a nice name. Pierre, who gave you that name? Not Ryder, I don't bet. The priest, he murmured. He said I hatched from a stone. Four. He stayed inside with us for a few weeks. We put him in the guest bedroom, where Alice's mother and father stayed when they came to visit, before they died. He didn't much care for the bed, and was happier sleeping under it. That was okay with us. Made him easier to hide during the occasional, unexpected, uninvited welcome-home visitor. We must have gotten fifteen casseroles that first month after I came back. It was sweet of everyone. It was nice to feel appreciated and all. When you've got a secret as strange as Pierre, you'd just as soon have the world leave you alone. When we had the place to ourselves, Pierre roamed freely. We came to think of him as a really smart kid. He was about the size of a first or second grader, and he had that same kind of permanent curiosity about him. He touched everything, but he never broke anything. He asked a lot of questions, always in that soft-spoken voice that never did lose the pretty Paris lilt that Alice liked so much to hear. He used to talk to me and Alice over breakfast, when my wife would make eggs, bacon, and grits for all three of us. I couldn't believe how much he could eat in one sitting. But he was a grown boy. He wasn't sure how old he was, but he thought he must have been ten or eleven, just a youngster. For as long as he could remember, he'd lived at the church with Jean, the priest who had died. 
The priest had been shot after an argument. A German soldier had gotten a peek at Pierre, and he'd cornered the priest downstairs. He told John, You must give me the monster that sleeps behind the altar. But John said no. They argued, and I was afraid. Of course you were, baby, Alice cooed. Anybody would have been. Jean was not. Jean locked me in the place where people went to say their sins. He would not open the door, and he would not tell the soldier where I was. That's why he died. So what were you doing in the basement then? I asked. There was no confessional down there that I'd seen. I followed him there once I pushed my way out. Jean had lived for a little while. Down underneath it was dark and quiet, but then there was a big noise and the wall fell. I had tried to cover him. That is how I hurt myself. I knew he died, but I did not know where else to go. Then you came. Hmm. Alice shook her head and put another load of fried eggs onto his plate. It's a southern thing, I guess. The desire to feed people when you don't know how else to comfort them. Bless your heart. He didn't use a knife or fork, but we forgave him. It looked awkward when he tried. So he ate instead with his not-quite hands. He was fussy and delicate with his food. It never seemed rude at all. It was like watching someone from another country, with manners that were every bit as good as yours, but different. This was a reminder, though, every mealtime, that he was not like us. That he was something else. He was something different. You don't want to talk about a rational creature as an animal, but he was clearly not a person either. He was thoughtful and helpful. Horses liked him, and he liked them. He had a general affinity for living things, which was nice. As he healed, he spent more and more time outside, until he announced that he preferred the barn after all. By then, his wings were strong enough to hold him first time I saw him fly, it made my chest hurt. It was so weird and so pretty. You see big birds sometimes. Even the biggest, ugliest buzzards look like angels in the air. It doesn't jive in a person's head how something so heavy and strong can flap and soar like that. That's how Pierre looked, too. Small, coppery angel. He flapped his way around the farm. In the sun, he was a thing of myth, not a monster. He was a thing of beauty, one of God's own creatures, I'd swear it. The dead French priest knew it, too. He must have. Me and Alice weren't brought up papists, but same as most folks we knew, we were Christians. And we're all looking up to the same sky, at the same God, at the same birds, at Pierre. All of us have the same questions and requests when we close our eyes and bow our heads. 5. Alice taught him his ABCs, and with a lot of effort, Pierre could write. It took years before his penmanship was good enough to read, but once it did, he wrote a lot. He used to ask for paper and pens. He liked the big sheets, the kind that artists use. They come in pads. I bought them for him in town. He liked big pencils, too. The thin ones broke in his hand as he got bigger and stronger. He did get bigger, too. A lot bigger. He was a little fellow. He used to fly around during the day, happy as a pig in mud. But by the time he quit growing, or grew so slow that we didn't notice anymore, he was the size of a good working horse. It got to where he only flew at night, so he didn't scare people. He was a thoughtful thing. He never wanted to bother anyone. Never wanted to make any trouble. But people did see him once in a while. Stories got out and around, as stories tend to do. The first stories were predictably hysterical. There's a monster in the woods outside Jonesboro. There's a dragon in the forest eating livestock and burning barns. Well, Pierre enjoyed a good steak as much as anybody. He didn't kill his own that I ever knew of. And he couldn't start a fire without a box of matches. I never saw him do it. After a while, though, the stories changed in timbre and tone. After a while, there were stories about strange angels. Lost kids were led back to town by a bright-winged creature that flew low enough to follow. Campers trapped in the snow would awaken to find themselves dug out, with paths leading off in the right direction. 
The paths would be stamped down with the most extraordinary footprints you ever saw. But they were always true and safe to follow. Missing sheep were returned unharmed to their pens. One time, one of our moonshiny neighbors had a still that went bust. Fire broke out and made its way to the house they had, and it was just a wood clapboard thing, so it went right up in smoke. On the second floor, there was a three-year-old girl, and everyone knew for sure she was dead to rights. While the fire still burned, they found that girl behind the house. She was standing in her nightgown, bare feet in the grass. She was looking up the sky, and she was smiling. Years later, when that girl was in third grade, she was told to write a polite thank-you note for a school project. Her mother brought the note to us because she thought it was cute, and because the kid insisted. It was written on that big ruled paper, hardly thicker than tissue. It was addressed, To the Redstone Dragon, at Ryder Neal's place. We showed it to Pierre, and he nodded solemnly. He wrote her a short letter in reply, and asked that we deliver it. Their little correspondence went on that way for years, and in time a few of the other school kids started leaving notes for him, too. They put them out in the barn, in the clean stall behind the horses. They left letters and drawings and chocolates there as if it were a shrine. Pierre didn't mind if the kid's parents thought we wrote his responses. It didn't matter to us, either, that the world thought we were participating in some cutesy joke like Santa Claus or the Tooth Fairy. It could be our secret, though some of the little ones knew better. And those little ones, when they grew up and had little ones of their own, they passed the stories down and along. Maybe now there are a dozen people these days who know the truth. There's no way to say. Everybody talks about our dragon with a wink in one eye and a sparkle in the other. Alice and I never did have any kids of our own, but we were never lonely for him. And all of these years, we've counted ourselves blessed. What a fun story. Cherie was kind enough to send us an author's note detailing its genesis. She says, A number of years ago, an old and dear friend from Memphis shared a bit of family lore that stuck with me, and eventually, with her blessing, this lore became a story called The Immigrant. In short, according to my friend, there was a farm in West Tennessee, and upon this farm was a dragon, or so the kids were told. They never saw this dragon, but they could leave it presents, and it would leave them notes in return, singed around the edges from the fire it breathed when no one was looking. Apparently this dragon reigned over the valley some time after the Second World War, but beyond that details were fuzzy. Even so, this skeleton of a story was enough to build the immigrant upon. I do hope you enjoy it. We certainly did, Cherie, and thank you for sharing it with us. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Our final story for this week is something a little bit darker. All the Lovely Brides by Kelly Sandoval. 
Kelly lives in Seattle, Washington, with her patient husband, demanding cat, and temperamental tortoise. She attended Clarion West in 2013 and lived to tell her tales. Her fiction has appeared in Shimmer, Asimov's, and Flash Fiction Online. You can find out more about her at kellysandovalfiction.com. It's read for you by a newcomer to the Triple F, the wonderful Andrea Subastati. Andrea is a sociologist, journalist, and podcaster. In 2010, her master's thesis on the social impact of zombie cinema was published under the title "When There's No More Room in Hell: The Sociology of the Living Dead." She joined the staff of Rue Morgue magazine in 2014, to which she is a frequent contributor. Her writing has already been published in the Undead Anthology and the Canadian horror film Terror of the Soul. In addition to writing, Andrea is the co-host and producer of the Faculty of Horror podcast, and has made guest appearances on the Rue Morgue podcast and Pseudopod, and is co-curator of the Toronto-based monthly horror lecture series The Black Museum. And here we have it, all the lovely brides by Kelly Sandoval. Sariana's touch is gentle as she slides the last ruby pin into Lydra's hair. Still, Lydra flinches. Soon, Sariana's sure fingers will draw a blade across Lydra's throat. Will she be so gentle then? The knife is more difficult in Lydra's experience. When she slit her own mistress's throat, her hands would not stop shaking. That was five years ago, her wedding day. She remembers the blood on her skin, warm as the Lord's smile. She remembers believing he loved her, that she would be the one he kept. For a time, he let her believe. He danced with her on the surface of Bride's Lake and visited her bed. Everything bloomed. Now the farmers complain of their weak harvest, and she shrivels as his hunger consumes her. She believes very little anymore. She studies her reflection. Her dress is black for mourning. Sariana wears red, a wedding gown. You look very beautiful, Lydra says. A bride should hear such things, and despite herself, Lydra likes sweet-tempered, gentle Sariana. They were friends once, or nearly so. The chosen are bad at friendship. Thank you, mistress. Sariana doesn't meet her gaze. Are you excited? It isn't a kind question. The Lord is waiting. Sariana shakes her head. I thought with you, I thought he might, he might love me. Lydra tries to smile, but she is too tired and too hungry. Yes, we all believe that, don't we? She can't remember her life before the temple. She can't remember the priests taking her or her first days among the chosen. But she remembers when the priests told her she could be the one. That if she only loved the Lord enough, he would love her too. He does not love, Lydra says, and Sariana flinches. In three years, five if she's strong, Sariana will sit before the mirror dressed in black. Jamir will pin rubies in her hair, readying her for sacrifice. Jamir is to be Sariana's handmaiden. Jamir, then Leshta, then Trinell, then Roni. The priests brought Roni a year ago. She's six. The priests say he's looking for a bride who truly serves him. Sariana's voice has a desperate edge. A partner. The priests are priests. To them, he is only a god. Lydra adds another dusting of false color to her cheeks. He will be your husband. Then you will see what it is to serve him. I'm scared, Sariana whispers. We all are. Of the two of them, Lydra imagines her fears are greater. She touches her neck. It's still whole, still smooth. 
Her fingers are sharp sticks of bone, and the paint doesn't hide her pallor. But she is whole. Sariana's skin glows with health. She holds out Lydra's crown, the rubies suiting her complexion better than they ever did Lydra's. Thank you. Lydra settles the crown on her hair. It feels heavier than yesterday. You look lovely. Sariana lies well. The Lord will appreciate that. Perhaps he will love her, find sustenance in her quiet kindness. Lydra, too, was kind at the beginning. It was easier then. She was more beautiful and less hungry. Do not hope for too much. She tries to sound gentle. He is not as you imagine. She has lain in his arms, heard him whisper of death and godhood. We are both sacrifices in the end, he told her. You feed me, I feed the land. You live, she said. I suffer. She knows his suffering. His endless hunger sits like a worm in her belly, devouring her by inches. His fingers, corpse cold, have stolen the warmth from her flesh. The people grow wheat and grow fat. In time, fresh, beautiful Sariana will be sallow-skinned and sunken-eyed. Sariana and all the girls who come after. All the girls who don't want to die. Lydra doesn't want to die. What else can I do? Sariana asks. Lydra has no answer. Sariana pours wine and offers her the cup. The wine is a deep, bruised red. Lydra lets it touch her lips. Sweet. It hides the laudanum well. Perhaps I'm wrong, she says. Perhaps it's better to love him. For a little while. Buy yourself a few months of joy. I love our people. Sariana sets her shoulders and lifts her chin. That's enough for me. Love them while you can, then. Love their hunger. It's all they'll offer you. The discordant clang of the noon bells fill the air. Lydra stands in a sweep of black silk and leaves the nearly full cup on her dressing table. She used to believe she'd face the blade bravely, even smile as the bride slit her throat. Her own mistress died cursing, and Lydra never forgave her. She forgives her now. At the bride's door, the chosen gather. Jameer wears pink. The rest wear white. Little Roni is crying. Hush now. Lydra crouches and grasps the girl's hands. Her own hands won't stop shaking. You must be good. Are you really going away? Roni asks. Yes. But why? Because that's what the chosen are for. It's Sariana's turn to be the bride. Will I go away? Lydra feels the disapproving weight of Jameer's stare and doesn't care. What good will lying do? Yes, Roni. All the chosen go away. Lydra stands and straightens her skirts. We're ready. Jameer opens the bride's door. The Grand Hall is built for first impressions, with vaulted ceilings and pillars of iron. Lydra's people have gathered to witness. They stand as close as they dare to the Isle of Red Silk. She looks for herself in their round, healthy faces. They have thrived as she is withered, and now they've come to watch her die. How easy it must be for them. A bride killed slowly, then all at once. A small price to pay for a generous god. Beyond the crowd, the Lord waits on his iron throne. A gray-robed priest stands beside him, holding the knife. The priest keeps his gaze locked on the Lord. The Lord watches Lydra. He smiles, showing straight white teeth. She used to like his smile. Now she looks away and focuses on her feet. One step, another. He will settle in Sariana like a tumor. 
she too will think he loves her. They stand before him, the old bride and the new. Lydra kneels, pressed down by the weight of his gaze. He touches her cheek, and she shivers. What remains of her warmth leaves her. She does not want to die. She looks up at Sariana, meaning to smile, or to curse her, or to beg. Sariana takes the knife in a shaking grip. Her eyes are bright with tears. She'll botch it, cut shallow. Lydra will bleed out slowly while the Chosen watch and the Lord gathers Sariana into his arms. She reaches up and grips Sariana's wrist, trying to steady the knife as it grazes her throat. I'm sorry, Sariana whispers. I don't want to. But she will. They all do. Lydra hates her, and herself, and all the lovely, obedient brides who came before. She squeezes, digging brittle nails into Sariana's fine, soft skin. The knife drops, hitting the silk-covered stone with a muffled thud. Lydra wraps her fingers around the familiar hilt. It's heavier than she remembers, warmer to the touch. She stands, still holding Sariana's wrist. They were friends once, and she's so very gentle. Lydra takes her by the chin. You serve your people, she whispers, and she slits Sariana's throat in a single steady stroke. The parting of skin and muscle, the rush of warm blood over her hands, the dull sound of Sariana's body hitting the stones. None of it surprises her. She has done it before. She wanted to live then, too. She ignores the gasping crowd, the cursing priest. Only the Lord matters now. He laughs. She remembers the sound, all velvet and heat, from long walks by moonlight. She's pleased him. The worm of his hunger eases its grip as he gains new strength from Sariana's death. Lydra takes her first full breath in months. She had forgotten what it meant not to hurt. She turns away from Sariana's corpse, looks past the crowd to the bride's door. Roni sobs silently, her fist stuffed in her mouth. Jameer stares at Lydra's bloody hands. Lydra understands the relief in her expression. Jameer need never learn the weight of the knife or the heat of fresh blood. I thought you had tired of bringing me gifts, the Lord says. Lydra refuses to mirror his smile. She won't play at banter, not while Sariana grows cold between them. I am not as tired as you might have wished, she says. And what will you do now? Host my hunger for another five years? He reaches forward and touches her gaunt wrist. I fear you haven't the strength for it. She studies the crowd. A slack-jawed farmer gawks at the Chosen. The woman next to him links her fingers in the sign against evil. The man, she decides. He can be first. You need not hunger. These are prosperous times, Lord. There is plenty of life to offer. And will you offer it? A god can't take what his people won't give. She smiles at last. I am ever your loyal bride. She will bring them and slit their throats and feel the warm flush of health return to her skin. She will bring as many as it takes. She will live. And that, dear listeners, is why we here at Far-Fetched Fables don't do weddings or funerals, because sometimes one leads to the other.
If you'd like to share your thoughts on this or any of our stories, you can leave your comments on the Triple F website, our Facebook page, or on Twitter. We love hearing from our listeners, and we want to know your thoughts on our content. Please remember that Farfetched Fables operates under a Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial No Derivatives 3.0 license, which means you can download the content and share it all you like, but don't change it and don't sell it, and be sure to give credit where credit is due. All other copyright remains that of the authors. Violators will have their wedding planned by George R. R. Martin. And that's it from me for this week. It was great being here with you again. Looking forward to the next one. Bye now. This presentation has been brought to you by the District of Wonders Network, dedicated to podcasting the finest genre fiction. You can learn more about the District of Wonders and their many literary productions at their website, www.districtofwonders.com. Thank you for listening. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.